Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Genealogy Gems Podcast episode number 214. In today's episode, Irish expert Donna Moody is going to join me to talk about Irish genealogy. She's going to help you get a jump start on your own Irish roots. Of course, before everybody else starts talking about theirs on St. Patrick's Day next month. And also today in the mailbox, I've got some inspiring questions and success stories from listeners who are creating their own family history videos. And later in the show, your DNA guide Diane Southerd is going to respond to one of your questions about why DNA. And of course, our own Michael Strauss is going to muster in to talk about finding your ancestors in the five branches of the U.S. military. First, let's start off with some good DNA news from Diane. In my first job as a grocery store clerk, I learned that most customer service issues can be solved if you listen carefully to the customer and do all you can to make it right. This is what my heritage has done. Hello, Genealogy Gems podcast listeners. This is Diane Southard, your DNA guide. For months after the launch of their in-house DNA testing product in the fall of 2016, MyHeritage DNA had matching algorithm problems. Even a year later, there were concerning reports of discrepancies between the match lists of parents and children. And yet, the genetic genealogy community was patient because my heritage had so far delivered on every promise they had made to the community. They had delivered a competitive origins or ethnicity product, they'd adopted a stringent privacy policy, and they let everyone upload their DNA for free. Now, in January of 2018, all that patience has paid off. MyHeritage has updated its matching algorithm and recalibrated all of the DNA matches in their system. The result is a much more robust depiction of our relationships with others in the database. Most users are seeing a dramatic increase in the total number of matches and a significant decrease in the number of false positives or matches that are on your match list, but they shouldn't be. Additionally, to the delight of many genetic genealogists, MyHeritage has launched a chromosome browser. This tool allows you to see the locations on the DNA that are shared with your match. Many genetic genealogists like to use this tool to help them visualize the shared DNA and group their DNA matches. Now that the matching algorithm has improved, I'd like to recommend three great tools you should be using at MyHeritage to help you identify your genetic matches. Yes, one of them is the chromosome browser, but take a look at others too. And take note, you won't find these exact tools at Ancestry DNA. First of all, tool number one, list of possible relationships for your genetic matches. In a recent blog post, I described how you can narrow down your possible relationships to your genetic matches by comparing your total shared DNA to a table developed by genetic genealogy experts. MyHeritageDNA simplifies that process for you with a customized chart for each of your genetic matches. Each chart visually shows you all possible relationships, even taking into account factors like your age and gender. To access the chart, log into your MyHeritage account under the DNA tab select genetic matches then click on the little question mark icon next to the relationship suggestions then you'll see a chart that's been customized for this relationship by highlighting all your possible relationships to your genetic match and by the way if you want to see all these great images head over to genealogygems.com and look at the show notes for this podcast tool number two the longest piece of shared dna In addition to the range of possibilities in the above tool, or the one that we were just talking about, you can also be misled by the total amount of DNA you share with your genetic matches. 
Yes, you might actually be third cousins, but if your ancestors lived in a community that intermarried a lot because they were isolated geographically or culturally, you might also just share a lot of common DNA. You might, instead of being third cousins, you might be sixth cousins three times over. The size of the biggest piece of DNA you share with a genetic match is really important for puzzling this out. Let's say two of your genetic matches each share 30 centimorgans of DNA. Remember that a centimorgan is just a unit of measure for DNA. Both are predicted to be your fourth cousins, but one person's longest shared piece of DNA is 18 centimorgans long, and the other is only 9 centimorgans long. The closer match, and the one you should pursue first, is the one that shares the longest piece of DNA. At MyHeritage, you can sort your list of genetic matches by longest shared segment. At the top of your list, under the All drop-down menu, select Largest Segment. You may see your match list rearrange itself. This is a clue that the total shared DNA doesn't tell you the whole story about genetic relationships. Then you can click on your top genetic matches to see more detail about that person with the longest segment. The tool number three is their new chromosome browser. The new chromosome browser at MyHeritage is what they're calling an initial release or first draft that will, quote, be enhanced further soon, end quote. It's currently embedded in each of your individual match pages. That way, you can compare what areas of genetic material you and each of your matches have in common. MyHeritage tells us that it's a free feature that can be used by all users on MyHeritage who've taken a DNA test or uploaded DNA data. They further tell us that it shows segments between you and a DNA match in purple. When you hover your mouse over any shared segment, you can see the genomic position of the shared segment, the size of the segment, and the number of SNPs there. Gray segments are not shared with the DNA match, and crisscross sections are not analyzed due to the lack of SNPs in those regions, end quote. Whew, that was quite an explanation. As you can see, there's a lot going on with this chromosome browser, and you can look forward to more podcasts and more blog posts at Genealogy Gems to help you figure it all out. But I just wanted to get this out there and tell you that MyHeritage has made some changes. So if it's been a while since you've logged in, you should head over and see what new things you might find. So until next time, this is Diane Southerd, your DNA guide. Well, that's good news indeed. Let's get some more good news. Let's head over to the mailbox. Muffy in Seattle, Washington, sent in the following email. She writes, finally got around to listening to episode 213 and the great story about the video y'all made to go with Tom's poem. What a great idea to have him read his poem and then add pictures. Something to think about for my future videos. This inspired me to share a video that I created this past Christmas for my dad. Trying to find out where our branch of walkers comes from was my inspiration for starting into the very addicting world of genealogy. Welcome, Muffy, to the addiction. <laughs> she says, unfortunately, it remains the only direct line I cannot trace across the pond. Gotta retire. Here is a link to my first video I wanted to share. It's a great hit with my dad, uncle, and cousins. And maybe it will be inspiration for others to take the leap into the video world. Well, I'll have a link to this video in the show notes, folks. I loved it. Watch it. You will feel good. It's a feel-good video. It's good editing that tells a compelling story. And I really think video isn't supposed to tell the whole kit and caboodle. It's supposed to spur conversation and spur thoughts and inspire people to, to think more about their own lives, their family history, and how interconnected we all are. So it really is terrific. And I could just gush, gush, gush for the next 15 minutes, but I won't because I got to leave you time to go watch Muffy's video. Okay. Uh, let's see here next in the mailbox. Oh, we've got a good question on music in family history videos. So Melissa sent in a great question. And she says, I have made a video using a basic subscription to Animoto. And I was very pleased with it. I do have a question about using music. While there are some choices on my basic subscription, 
I seem to have my own idea of the music that I would like. Now, in your video, you mentioned to make sure the music we download is permissible. I searched the public domain music and came up with nothing useful. Even looked on the Library of Congress jukebox collection, and it only streamed. And I thought using that would not be permissible. How do I find more available and permissible music to use for my videos? My videos are just for family members and not for profit, but I want to do the right thing. And she says, I look forward to your podcasts and videos. You continue to educate me. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. And you know, this question is for everybody. Even if you're not making videos, um, you might be making, you know, PowerPoint slide presentations or, or whatever. There may be a time where you'd like some music to include in some kind of family history project or any kind of project you're doing. And unfortunately, I have found that free, royalty-free music sites are few and far between. Uh, you're smart, Melissa, to be cautious, because if you were to put your video on YouTube, um, they actually now have technology that will identify any song that's used in the video that, and if it violates copyright. So every so often, in fact, even with my Animoto videos, I'll put something on YouTube and I'll get a notice saying, oh, this, there's a possible violation of copyright. We're having them check into it. it it's not a big deal. Nobody's taking you to court. <laughs> but the company has the right, whoever owns the copyright for it, to, to take a look at it and say, am I okay with you including this? Um, and this can happen. And the reason I had gotten them is because of Animoto music. But when you have an Animoto subscription, you have the rights to use the music. So all you have to do if you were on YouTube would be to write a quick note back and contest it and basically say, oh, no, I bought a subscription. I have the rights to use this. I have always had mine cleared immediately. So nobody's ever given me a problem about it. But just know that that technology is out there. So you can't really skirt around this, okay? And we do want to do it the right way. The good news is that YouTube does make free music available to you. Did you know that? Even if you don't have a big YouTube channel like I do, if you have a free Google account, you have a YouTube channel, right? You just sign into YouTube into your Google account. So sign in and click on your picture. It's going to be in the upper right-hand corner and just go to what's called Creator Studio and upload your video. And you can keep it private if you want to. There's a little setting for that. And then on the video page, you click Audio. It's right above the video title. And there are many, many music tracks to choose from. They have a wonderful assortment. In fact, you have heard some of that YouTube music here on the podcast. Once you've added a track and you've saved it, you should be able to download the video with the music included. Isn't that awesome? The other source that I use for music that comes with programs is Camtasia. So I use Camtasia to make our awesome premium videos. And uh, Hannah does all the editing in there. And there's a whole music library. And in fact, they'll make more music available that you can add to your library. I also want to mention one more thing. Now, um, Melissa said that she even looked on the Library of Congress's jukebox collection. Uh, don't assume immediately that that is not available to you. Um, keep in mind that when it comes to music, there are still some public domain rules. Like we talk about how books are typically prior to 1923, unless the copyright got renewed by the author or the, um, the owner of the copyright. Music has some of the similar kinds of dates. So you can Google that. Prior to the 1960s, it was kind of wide open, but I would play it much more safer and do it much earlier in the in the 20th century. But the thing to know about the Library of Congress is that is yours. That's the government. And that's the US government. So um, stuff that's on, you know, the National Archives or on that are government websites, that's government copyright, if you will. That's yours. You're an American citizen. So they always have really great information about copyright on the Library of Congress. A couple of clicks should get you to the right spot to find out if what you're listening to is something that you can use. So check that out. Great question. Uh, and I sent all that information personally by email to Melissa, which I try very hard to do as, as I have time. And I know not every single one of you have heard of me personally, but we do read every single email. And um, you know, might be surprised eventually you're going to get something from me. But I wrote Melissa back and she said, thank you. Uh, I did go to YouTube. 
found the music that I wanted. It's called Keep On the Sunny Side. And it had a Creative Commons license, which meant that she could use it. My mother sang that when I was a child, and she heard it from her aunt, who raised her when she was a child. It was the perfect song for the Animoto video of my mother's memories of her mother and aunt. It was wonderful to find that song in the public domain. I had no idea to look there before your response. Happy to help. It is a gem, is it not? (laughs) All right. Thank you so much to Melissa and to Muffy for writing in. And of course, you can do that. And it's easier than ever because you go to genealogygems.com and you scroll down to the bottom of the page and you find our contact form there and you can reach us that way. And you can also leave a voicemail on the voicemail line. It's 925-272-4021. And finally, if you are heading to Roots Tech 2018 uh, at the end of February, beginning of March in Salt Lake City, you're going to be interested in this next item sent in to me from Devin over at the Genealogy Business Alliance. What's the buzz? The GBA.buzz scavenger hunt. The GBA.buzz scavenger hunt is an exciting new expo hall game to play during the upcoming Roots Tech Conference in Salt Lake City beginning February 28th. You'll buzz around the expo hall using your smartphone or tablet. Just like a regular scavenger hunt, you look for clues to earn points. Visit the 16 participating booths in the Roots Tech Expo Hall, such as Kindex, Family Chart Masters, and Photos, Movies, and more. Scan a QR code or enter the booth URL into a browser on your device. Answer a question about each vendor and earn points for every correct answer. Keep scanning codes until you have earned all 16 points. When you're finished, you'll be entered into a drawing to win prizes from businesses such as Ancestry, Legacy Tree Genealogist, Roots Magic, and MyHeritage. We're giving away more than $2,000 in prizes, including a Chromebook. But that's not all. While you play the game, you'll earn instant coupons that you can use right there on the convention floor, or instant rewards that you can redeem when you leave the conference. There's no need to install a special app on your phone to play the GBA.buzz scavenger hunt game. You'll use any browser on any mobile device. Winners will be drawn Monday, March 5th during a live stream through the Family History Fanatics YouTube channel. For more information on the GBA.buzz game, check out Lisa's show notes for a link to the Genealogy Business Alliance website and a how-to video. Now you know what the buzz is. GBA.buzz. Lots of prizes, multiple winners, oodles of fun. As I travel the world talking about genealogy, folks are always stopping me and asking for my advice on organizing and securing their family history research. And my standard answer is plant your family tree in your own backyard and share branches online. Planting your tree in your own backyard, it means keeping one master family tree in a software file right there on your own computer. That gives you ownership, control of privacy and security, and one central place to organize everything that you learn about your family. And of course, my software choice and the one that I use is Roots Magic. I find that its tree building tools are second to none. And with Roots Magic web hints, you can see what record hints are available on FamilySearch, Find My Past, and My Heritage. And now you have the ability to synchronize your Roots Magic database with your ancestry tree and get those ancestry.com web hints right there inside of Roots Magic. These are features that are really critical and they're exclusive to Roots Magic. So plant your tree today in Roots Magic and watch it grow. Get started at rootsmagic.com. You've probably found wonderful old photos and documents in your research. But that's not exactly exciting stuff to your kids and your grandkids. The truth is, the non-genealogists in our families aren't captivated by the same things we are. But you can change all that with Animoto.com. Start creating fabulous videos about your family history that they won't be able to resist. And you don't have to have any special skills. With Animoto, you drag and drop your files in, like photos and even video clips. Pick from their professional styles and huge music catalog and 
voila, you've got an awesome video. I've made dozens of these and my family loves them. Hey, my grandson didn't mention the Legos that I gave him for his birthday, but he did thank me for the video that I made. You've got to try this out for yourself. Visit Animoto.com. fully admit it, my toughest line to research has been my Irish great-grandmother's family. And I know for so many of you listening that your Irish lines have posed some challenges to say the least. And so many of us do have Irish ancestors somewhere in our tree. I wanted to publish a line of quick reference guides that would kind of answer your questions and my questions about Irish research. I knew who the right genealogist was for the job. It was a former regional manager for Apple Computer, who also just happens to be a professional genealogist, and that's Donna Moody. And she's been conducting family history research for over 20 years. She teaches classes and lectures on a variety of subjects, including Irish research. And she makes regular trips over across the Atlantic to dig into her own tree and to help other researchers dig into theirs. So she knows what she's talking about. And I am so happy to say she is here with me today on the podcast. Hi, Donna. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I'm thrilled you're here because I'm very excited that we have the brand new number three edition in the series on Irish genealogy, our quick reference guides. I want to ask you first a kind of a tough question right out of the gate. And then I'd love to have you maybe share an example from your own research, because I think that helps put everything kind of into context. Donna, what's the most common reason for people failing or giving up on Irish research? What causes them to close the laptop and walk away? So many people feel like you can't do Irish research. One of the big challenges, as you talked about earlier, is the fact that in 1922, the public records office was burned and we lost a thousand years of Irish history. So a lot of people feel like there's no records. But that's not really the case. The records that burned were really devastating, but there still are lots of other records that we can work with. The most important thing that you need to know in order to be successful in doing Irish research, however, is the exact location, what we call the townland, where your ancestor was born. That makes sense. We see Ireland written on a census or on a death certificate, and and you don't have that town name. I assume have families in your family tree that you had that exact problem with? Yeah. You know, when I first got started, um, it was because of a school project for my oldest daughter. She wanted to find out about the Moody family. Now, for those people that haven't seen my name written out, it's M-O-U-G-H-T-Y. So it's a very unusual name. Mm-hmm. There's actually only one fam- one other family in the United States with that name. Really? And there's only a few in Ireland. So it is a rather unique name. It's finding that place in Ireland. And that's really why I wrote Guide Number number one, that's so important. I was fairly lucky when I first got started in that I was able to find a birth record for my husband's immigrant grandfather. And on that birth record, it gave the name of the town where he was born. Now, the interesting thing is that the family tradition had always said that he had come from Mullingar in County West Meath. But when I got that birth certificate, he was actually from a little town called Ochnaboy, which is a small townland that's about 10 miles outside of Mullingar. But it's in a different civil and ecclesiastical jurisdiction, as well as a different registration district. Now, because in Ireland we have so many really common names, if I had been searching a common name, I might have found someone in Mullingar with that name, but it would have been the wrong person. So that's why that townland information is so important. It's also why it's so important to do an exhaustive search of all of the records here in the United States, because if that information exists, it's probably going to be on a record here. And so that's where your research, your iris research really has to start. That's a great point. I think about where I live, and oftentimes I just tell people, I live in Dallas. 
because they know where that is. But I'm not going to mention the, the little tiny town, you know, 45 minutes outside of town, because they're like, where is that? And then you end up explaining it. I imagine there might have been times with so many different little towns that maybe they mention the actual town, maybe they mention where the parish was. Is that possible? So you might be actually seeing different town names on different documents. That's why you need them all. That's right. And that's why you want to look at all the records, because they may have named the religious parish Mm -hmm. in one record. They may have mentioned the registration district in another record, or they may have mentioned the townland. It's funny you mentioned the Dallas, because I have the same situation. When people ask me where I'm from, I say Sarasota. But I'm actually about 10 miles outside of Sarasota, and actually in Manatee County, not Sarasota County. Uh-huh. But it's it's the place that most people would relate to mm-hmm. in terms of where I'm from. And our ancestors did the same thing. Yeah, very understandable. So that was really where this all started was with the guide number one, where you walked the genealogists through how to identify them. And, and you said it yourself, it's that exhaustive search. I, I'd love uh-huh. to have you just reemphasize even though you find one, maybe even two documents, you go, oh my gosh, there it is. We don't stop there, right? You collect everything that's available on this side of the pond before you go over there. Absolutely. My grandmother, who was Irish, at least that's what I, but from the north of Ireland, she always said, that's sort of another problem. But on the first document that I got for her, she said she was born in Scotland. And I have three documents that say she was born in Scotland. And then I have another document that says she was born in Ireland. Two very different places. (laughs) Two very different places. And in fact, getting her birth certificate was able to prove that she was in fact from Ireland and not Scotland. But, you know, going back to the comment about the north of Ireland, and people will ask me that a lot, you know, where are the records? Because my ancestors were from the north. People have to remember that Ireland was not split until 1922. And so Ireland was only one country prior to that. Right. That's a pretty recent occurrence. Very recent, yeah. Okay, so they get through number one, which is the preparing for success in Irish records research. And I really, really recommend that guide for everybody, even if you think you've already had success in one area, if you've got more Irish, if you have some troubles, it's such a wonderful reminder to how thorough to be, and you've given them every little nook and cranny to look. And then in Irish Guide number two, you really focused in on locality. And I remember you telling me, oh, we need to separate the locality from, you know, and and then getting into churches and civil registrations and then land, uh, because they're all such different animals in terms of research. Tell us about the churches and the, the civil registration records. Well, civil registration began in Ireland in 1864 for everyone, and in 1845 for Protestant marriages. Now, prior to those dates, the only records that would be available would be church records. So, the first thing you have to recognize or identify is what was your ancestor's religion? Now, most people will say, you know, Catholic, they were all Catholic, but there was the Church of Ireland, which was the Anglican, the Protestant church, which was a state church in Ireland until 1860. And so that's very important because even if your ancestors were Roman Catholic, you might also want to look for them in the Church of Ireland records. And then, of course, in Ulster, the primary religion in that area was Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. because we had so many of the Ulster Scots that came over from Scotland. And so that became the primary religion. Prior to the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland, however, you'll find many Protestant records, Presbyterian records, actually in the Church of Ireland as well. So you have to understand a little bit about that. The majority of Ireland has always been Roman Catholic. However, because of the Church of Ireland being a state church, the Roman Catholic religion was suppressed in Ireland during the time that was referred to as the penal laws, and Catholics were not allowed to go to Mass or to participate in anything within the Catholic Church. So Roman Catholic records in Ireland typically don't start until about 1820. Now, there are exceptions to that. There are some that go back into the 1700s, the late 1700s, usually in the larger cities. 
but there's also records that don't start until the 1880s. So knowing the location of your ancestor, which you found out in Guide 1, and their religion in Guide 2, this guide will take you through the steps of figuring out what records exist for the time and place and religion of your ancestor. And you really break it, break it down. I mean, quite a bit. And there's some great charts and things on here. Give us a sense. I know there's, it's a huge topic, so we can't do it all in 20 minutes. But give us a sense when it comes to, let's say, civil registrations, how much of that might be online? And how much of that is in person, or you need to hire somebody over there? That is something that's really exciting right now, because it's changed the whole landscape of that has changed drastically over the last two years. It used to be that the Family History Library had an index. They created the first index for civil registration in Ireland, and you can go and use those indexes. They cover from 1864 to about 1957 for the Republic of Ireland for all of Ireland until 1922 and the Republic from 1922 to 1957. So the Family History Library indexes were the ones that we used for doing our research, but they were just indexes and you had to actually write to the General Register Office in Ireland in order to get the actual certificate. Right. Now, two years ago, one of the Irish departments of tourism actually took those indexes and connected them to the actual images of the registrations, Mm. which has just been a wonderful benefit for us because one of the problems that we always had was – The names are so common in Ireland, you might have five James Daly's that were all born in the same year, and there wasn't enough information in the index to tell you which was the right one. So there is a website called irishgenealogy.ie, which is a free website, which has taken all of the civil registration indexes and are in the process of connecting them to the actual images. Now, today, what is available are all birth registrations from 1864 to 1915. All right, there is a hundred-year restriction on when records can be made available on the internet. And they did this project in in 2015, and so the records at this point only go to 1915. The restriction on marriages is 75 years, and the restriction on death are 50 years. Both the death and the marriage registers do go farther than that, but after 1922 would only cover the republic. Mm. It's such a changing landscape. I mean, I think about last time I really dug into my Lynch family, and it was over 10, 15 years ago, I had a book And that's why I was so excited to work with you on this, because even if you have old books, old articles, whatever, you've got to have the latest info or else you're either working too hard or you're completely missing stuff. Because wouldn't it be terrible to to pay a professional over there to do it when it turns out that that's now online and now they are connecting those images? I mean, it's exciting stuff, but you have to stay up to speed and up to date on it. And even up to date within the last 30 days, because wow. the, mar- the marriages and deaths didn't start until like the 1890s in this project. And they have always said that they would take them back and they would continue to work on this as a project. But, you know, time in Ireland goes very slowly. So <laughs> we're never sure how fast that's going to happen. But last month, I discovered additional records that went back into the early marriage records into the early 1870s. So they are moving backwards and adding those records that were not a originally online. So that's wonderful. Now, in terms of church records, those have been available on microfilm at the National Library of Ireland. A year ago, or two years ago, what happened is they took all of those microfilm images 
and they digitize them and put them online. So you can go to the National Library in the URL is nli.ie and you can access all of the images of Roman Catholic parish registers. Now, what they didn't do was index them. So you had to basically, it was like going through microfilm, but digitally. Last year, Ancestry and Find My Past in a joint project indexed all of those records. So now we have another place to go for the church records. And those indexes on both Ancestry and Find My Past are free indexes. Wow. Now, will they always stay that way? Or is that like for a contractual amount of time? I believe it'll be for a contractual period of time, but I haven't heard when that's going to go off. So that's one place, but those again are just Roman Catholic records. So if you have Presbyterian or Church of Ireland ancestors, the records are in sort of multiple places, but there was a project that was started in the late 1980s in Ireland for local genealogy and history centers in every county to go in and index the records for that county. Now, many of those centers have since closed, but rootsireland.ie has become the place where you can go to get access to those transcriptions. And those are just transcriptions, not images. That is a subscription site but you can get a subscription for a day or a month. So if you uh, get all your work together, then you can sit down and go through those very, very easily on their website. A lot of overlap with the Roman Catholic records that are also on Irish genealogy, but different places, different bits of information. There's just a, a whole, the whole landscape of church and civil records in Ireland has just drastically changed. Wow. And and you've just done an amazing job of laying out step by step. It's a real process here that you follow in, in the guide. And kudos to the folks in Ireland for sticking with these projects and making them happen. It's tremendous. Now we've dug into church and dug into civil Guide number three, your newest guide, is land, tax, and estate records. And as I was working with you on this and doing some editing, I I was just blown away, one, at your depth of knowledge, but two, that there was so much here. Tell us a little bit of kind of an overview picture, why these records matter. Well, once you've gotten through the civil and the church records, the biggest issue in Ireland is this fire and the fact that the oldest surviving census for Ireland is 1901. So for the entire 19th century, we've had this dearth of records. There's where do you go next to look? And so the Griffiths valuation has become sort of the only record set from that mid-19th century time frame to work with. And it's frequently referred to as a census substitute since we don't have any census records. But Griffiths is actually a tax list. And it's important to remember that because people will look at it and say, oh, there are just so many people by the same name. How do I know which one is mine? If there are all of these names and you don't know which one is you know, you're John Daly, how do you figure that out? Well, there were some specific rules about how to identify people. And because this is a tax list, your ancestor may have had a lease on multiple pieces of property. So they may be listed multiple times. And what I tried to do in the guide is lay out how you differentiate people of the same name in the same area to try and determine which one is your ancestor. And that's what I found fascinating. And the tips and tricks you had for kind of wading through all that, it was amazing to me how many people you found with the same exact name. Mm -hmm. And they could all be the same person. One of the things that you have to remember is that our ancestors in Ireland lived in the same area for generations. And that there was a particular naming pattern that they used. So, for example, the eldest son was typically named after the paternal grandfather. 
And then the second son was named after the maternal grandfather. And the third son was named after the father. Now, if you had a family that had five sons, when they all had their first son, they were going to name them after the grandfather. So all of a sudden you have, uh, you know, five John Daly's that are all about the same age living in the same area. And so differentiating all of those people becomes an issue. And so one of the things in Griffith's valuation that a lot of people don't realize is that if the name is written down followed by parentheses and another word or name in those parentheses, that differentiates that person from just the other person of the same name. So if you have John Daly and you have five John Daly's, they're all the same person if they're in the same townland. However, if you have John Daly parentheses James and John Daly parentheses Hugh, you're seeing one was the son of James and one was the son of Hugh. So you can start developing these family groups as you work through Griffith's valuation. And again, because cluster genealogy in Ireland is so important, these people are probably all related because, as I said, they've lived in that same area for generations. And you've got some great examples in here. You break down the forms so we understand what we're reading, what it what it means to us. Then you go into the revision books. That was a whole new area for me. Tell us a little bit about what is a revision book. Okay, the revision books, remember I said that Griffith's valuation was a tax list. And as a tax list, it had to be kept up to date because they had to always know who was supposed to be paying the taxes. And so once Griffiths was done, the tax valuators would go back to the townland every couple of years and they would go through their list of people and they would say, well, this was John Daly. Is John Daly still here? And they'd say, no, this property is now with James Daly. And so they would cross out the information that they had in their book and they would write in James and they would give it a date. Now, these books are only in manuscript form. They were never printed, and they reside in the valuation office in Dublin or for the six counties of Northern Ireland that are at the Public Records Office of Northern Ireland. And you can actually follow the piece of property that you identified in Griffith's valuation in the Republic all the way up to the 1970s. So, for example, I was looking at the Moody family, which was in Ochnaboy in Piercetown, was the parish in County Westmeath. The interesting thing was in Griffith's valuation, Bernard Moody was not there. He was actually listed as Bernard Murtaugh. But when I followed through the revision books... In 1883, Murtaugh was crossed out and Moody was written in. Hmm. So what happened in 1980, I'm sorry, this was 1883, was probably that the property passed from father to son. And at that point, they realized that they had miswritten the name and they corrected it. Ah. Because that property, when I followed that property through, in the 1950s, it moved from Bernard to his son, John, and John was not married, did not have any children. And when he died in 1966, it moved to Hubert McCormick. Now, I knew that Herbert McCormick was the husband of John Moody's sister, So it stayed in the family. It just moved down through a female line. And so that's one of the things that you can trace. And that land is still in the family. And I've actually been there and visited the land, met with the uh, people that are there. The house, the original house is a ruin. They've built another house on the property. But it's, it's wonderful to just be able to go there and walk the, the land where your ancestors lived. And I was able to do that because I was able to follow it through in Griffith's valuation and the revision books. 
Well, as you can hear, my dogs are excited about this too. (laughs) They're off in the background (laughs) going off. What I really hear you saying overall, and and I know our, our time is coming quickly to a close, but you're really just talking about the fact that this is doable. It's not simple. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not a simple process, but there are some really fun challenges and puzzles to solve here. And that's the beauty of these guides is that you really walk along with the genealogist. It's not just kind of a, a quick overview, but you literally give them step by steps. And in guide number three, which is all about these land and tax and estate records covering Griffith's valuation. And the revision books, the tithe plotments you go into, the landed estate records. Who knew there were so many records when all we hear about is there's a fire, they're gone, there's no way to do this. You've you've come up with some really fascinating strategies. I I, I love it as a puzzle solver. I just think it's really, really cool. And it, and it really invigorates me to want to go back and take another stab at it. The thing you have to remember about Irish records is that everything is dependent upon time and place. Yes. You may find records for, for one parish and the parish next door doesn't have any records. So it is a matter of looking to maybe some unusual records that you haven't used before. Mm-hmm. Some of those records were getting more and more online, but there are also record sets that'll never be online. The estate records, which were private records mm-hmm. of the landlords, are in various places. Many of them are in Ireland, but there's also many of them that are in England because they were absentee landlords, and that's where their major estate was. But Digging through these, you might find a reference to a rent payment for your ancestor, or you maybe your ancestor was a blacksmith and the landlord was paying him for doing work on the estate, so you may find a bill or something like that. It shows that your ancestor was in that place in that time, and so we look at all sorts of different records. Now, you are definitely going to get to a place in Ireland as you get back into the early 1800s where there's going to be very, very few records. But if you read the history of an area and you learn about that, you can learn about what life was like in that area. So maybe you can't specifically say, you know, this ancestor was born on this date but you know they were in that area. These were the things that were happening at that time. And so you can add information to your family history. It's an exciting time to be a genealogist, like you said, because so much is changing. And, and that's and that's a good thing. And thank you so much for guiding us all through it and giving us some hope. And as like you say, also setting some realistic expectations and who knows what the future will hold. And you definitely want to go to Ireland and visit, even if you can't find that specific record, just going to the area. It's such a beautiful place to visit. And, you know, I take groups over there every year to research. We've got a group going in October of 2018. Actually, both the Belfast and the Dublin trips are totally booked at this point for 2018, but I'll be taking another group in 2019. And so, getting ahead of and and doing the research here at home so that you'll be ready to go over there and actually have some success once you get to Ireland is is important. Can they get more information about that over at your website? Absolutely. There's a a link on my website, which is just moodymylastname.com for Ireland research trips. And you can see what's there. I've got pictures from previous trips, comments from people that have been in the past. And as soon as I have the dates for 2019, they'll go on to the list too. But I I already have started a wait list for 2019. Oh, terrific. Well, and as she said, it's m-o-u-g-h-t-y.com. We'll have links to that website, as well as some of the ones that she's mentioned here. And this wonderful time together talking about Irish research. Of course, the guides are available over at our store at genealogygems.com. Donna, I love always visiting with you, but thank you so much for sharing all your wonderful knowledge with us here on the show. Thanks, Lisa. I really appreciate it.
Okay, have you visited backblaze.com slash Lisa yet? If you don't have cloud backup for your computer yet, everything on it is vulnerable to loss. Your pictures, your master genealogy database, files for work, the everyday business of your household, losing all that at once is as devastating as it sounds. That's why I did my homework and I found a cloud-based backup service provider. I chose Backblaze. It runs in the background 24-7 automatically saving copies of everything, including my precious video files. Did you know that some of the other leading services actually skip your video files when they do the backup? Hello, not good. And Backblaze is so easy to use. I love their free app that allows me to access all my files if I need to from my smartphone or my tablet. Most importantly, the service is totally affordable for real people. It's just $5 a month. So don't wait to ensure that all your files are safe. Do it now. Back them up like I do with Backblaze. Head over to backblaze.com slash Lisa and get that $5 a month deal. Check it out for yourself. You could even do a free trial. That's backblaze.com slash Lisa. MyHeritage.com is your home for global genealogy research. The site boasts the most geographically diverse membership in the world, with a strong presence in many European countries. Search for cousin connections worldwide among more than 86 million people on a site that operates in over 40 languages. Powerful proprietary search technologies at MyHeritage.com dig deeper and with greater accuracy into billions of historical records and online trees. This is the only major genealogy website that offers automated hinting on possible matches in digitized historical newspapers. And now MyHeritage offers autosomal DNA testing too. They're jumpstarting their DNA database by inviting members to upload their own and by sponsoring tests in certain parts of the world. I'm looking forward to the geographical diversity I anticipate from their DNA data. So head on over to myheritage.com and expand your global genealogy research. That's myheritage.com. Battalion, attention. Right, rest, front. Right shoulder, arms, forward, march. Hello, listeners. We have mustered in for another episode of Military Minutes with Michael Strauss. Last month, we explored what it meant to be a regular, a volunteer, or a militiaman. Looking beyond the enlistments, this month we will talk about each of the five military branches, namely the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, and the Coast Guard. The largest of the branches is the United States Army, which dates back to 1775 to the beginning of the Revolutionary War. At the end of the war, the army disbanded after the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1783. In 1796, it was reestablished and included the infantry, the cavalry, the artillery, and the Corps of Engineers. For those who had ancestors who trod the quarterdeck of a frigate, the United States Navy has always had a fine tradition of service. Dated from 1775 at the end of the war, like the army, it was also disbanded but it was reestablished under the Naval Act of 1794. The Navy can be classified into two eras. The earlier known to sailors as the Old Navy began with the age of the wooden sailing ships. The latter known as the New Navy witnessed further innovations in the late 19th century as the United States transformed into a global power. Now, officially the youngest of the military branches, the Air Force was formed as part of the Security Act of 1947. Air Force history, however, dates earlier when it was part of the United States Army since 1907. Over the next 40 years of service, they would grow and change until their separation from the Army. Each of these changes will be listed in the show notes. Now, the beginnings of the United States Marines date from 1775. Their mission included ship-to-ship fighting, onboard security, and landing force operations, working alongside their Navy cousins. At the end of the war, the Marines, like the Navy, disbanded. The Navy Act of 1794 reestablished the Marines that would become known and as an elite fighting force the world over. Now, the smallest of the military branches dates from 1790, with the formation of the Revenue Cutter Service. 
1915, President Woodrow Wilson would sign into law the Act to Create the Coast Guard when both the Revenue Cutter Service and the Life Saving Service would merge together. In 1939, the United States Lighthouse Service was added. Although first envisioned as a force of revenue tax collectors, their ability to conduct many diverse missions during both peacetime and war really became the hallmark of this service. Now, genealogists who look deeper in their family tree can often find gems that are sometimes overlooked. Over the last 30 years of researching, I have found a number of my ancestors who had served from the colonial period onward, all of whom had served in the army. Now, several years ago, I was given a box of photographs from a relative of mine on my dad's side. One of those images was marked Russell Strauss, and it was in the uniform of the Navy during World War II. Now, he was my grandfather's first cousin, and I didn't really know him very well growing up. Between doing research and interviewing my relatives, I was able to piece together clues to questions I had about his military service. It was his picture in uniform that led me to put together that final clue about his service career. On a future episode, we will discuss how looking at images only, with nothing else, can provide information about your military ancestor. Listeners, you're dismissed until next month, when we will again muster in. In our previous episodes, I've mainly focused on men who had served. Next month, we will talk about the women who had served in the military and the records they left behind. Until next time. Profile America, Wednesday, January 24th. An accidental discovery at a construction site on this date 170 years ago changed the course of our history. In 1848, James Marshall was building a sawmill for his boss, John Sutter, near Coloma, California, when he found gold. The pair tried to keep the discovery secret, but word got out, and by the following year, the famous gold rush was on, drawing some 100,000 fortune seekers to the California Territory. About $2 billion of gold was mined during the rush, which spurred construction of railroads and hastened statehood for California. While the 49er image is long gone, about 14,000 workers at 175 establishments nationwide still make their living mining gold ore, extracting more than $9 billion worth of the precious metal from the ground every year. Profile America is in its 21st year as a public service of the U.S. Census Bureau. I hope you had fun in this Genealogy Gems podcast episode 214. Thank you so much to to Michael and Donna and Diane. We love having all these smart people around here. And I hope that you've uh, picked up some gems along the way. That's our goal. And I want to thank our production team, Sunny. Sonny Morton, our contributing editor, and Vienna Thomas and Hannah Fullerton, my lovely daughters who do uh, our audio sound production. And of course, Lacey Cook, isn't she amazing? She responds immediately to you. She's your happiness manager. And you hear from her typically when you get in touch with us. And she always has answers to your questions. Um, I am looking forward to heading out the door in just a couple of weeks. What, two weeks from now? By the time you listen to this, probably, I'll be heading to Roots Tech. And I hope to see many, many of you there. And Bill got me an awesome new recorder for on the go. So I'm going to be recording some new interviews and all kinds of great content at Roots Tech. And the good news is he tells me that this new recorder is going to kind of dim down all that noise that happens in the conference so that you can really enjoy those recordings. I I hate to kind of blast your ears out (laughs) with some of these conference recordings, but I think we're going to see some real improvement there. So I'm looking forward to bringing you lots of great stuff right from Roots Tech. And we are, Bill and I are flying directly from Roots Tech to Sydney, Australia. (laughs) So it's going to be a whirlwind. Uh, Thank goodness uh, Lacey's going to be here and holding down our fort. But we are going to be heading to Australia. I'll be keynoting the Australasian Congress. If you are in Australia, have you got your tickets yet? You got to come. It's going to be amazing. I am really looking forward to it. And uh, first time ever down there. And then after we do that, we're going to we're going to hit the Great Barrier Reef. 
Have you seen the pictures online? <laughs> I can't wait to check it out. So we'll have lots of stories to tell you and um, hopefully lots of great conversations with some of the Aussies down there. Get them on here on the podcast. So it's a worldwide family here, folks. And I appreciate that you're here with us each and every month. Thank you so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.